verses 13 to 18. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is allured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we're in the book of James, uh, as Ruth has just read. We kicked off a new series last week, um, and we're going to be in this letter for our, uh, really the next couple of months for the summer. Um, and we, last week with Thomas, we sort of did the, the envelope, um, looked at who this letter was written by, who it was written to, uh, and we discovered that this letter is written by James, obviously, who is the half-brother of Jesus Christ, uh, and he's the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And we know that this letter was written to a group of uh, Christians who were faced with opposition, they were faced with persecution, they were faced with hardship. Things weren't easy for them in following Jesus, and they were persecuted for their faith. They'd lost jobs, they'd lost homes, loved ones. Some had to leave the communities that they loved behind, all because of their faith. And on one hand, James is writing this letter to encourage those believers, to help them to press on and persevere in their faith. But on the other hand, he's writing to them because they're Christians who maybe have not truly understood, oh, not truly understood what it looks like to live out their faith in Jesus. So they've, uh, they've come to know him, they've inherited this relationship with Jesus Christ, but they're not quite sure what it actually looks like for them to then live that out day to day, to go through trials and to live by faith in Jesus, to feel these temptations to walk away from their faith and to know how to stay faithful to Jesus Christ to know how to deal with their money, to know how to um, even approach issues out there in the world like social justice, uh, issues around poverty, all those kind of things. James has written this book to help them understand how to live out their faith in this world. And we we said that the title of this series, uh, Thomas told us this last week, was that faith works. Faith works. Because a big part of this letter... James spends his time telling us about the relationship between our faith and works. And he says throughout this letter that genuine faith, authentic faith, will show itself in the life of a true believer. Our faith in Jesus will have an impact on our lives, but it will also have an impact on the lives of people out there in the world around us. Faith works in us, but faith works out there as well. That's what James is saying. And so as we go through this letter, he's going to continually ask us the question, are the marks of genuine faith evident in your life? If you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, are the marks of genuine faith true in your life? 
seen and evident in your life. Not so that we look at our neighbor and say, are you for real? But so that we look at ourselves and we ask ourselves, am I someone who is a mature, faithful follower of Jesus Christ? Now, Thomas showed us last week that one of the marks of genuine faith that James says is evident in the life of believers is that they persevere in trials. That when difficult things come in life, which they will, then we are people who trust God, are faithful to him. We believe in those trials that God is using them for our good and for his glory. It's in that perspective of knowing that God is sovereign in our trials, that he is in control and that he is using them for our good as a way of conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ, that we actually can have joy. It seems completely ridiculous, radical, countercultural, doesn't it, to feel joy or to experience joy in your trials. But that's what James says faith in Jesus Christ does for us. It enables us to feel joy in our trials. And when we pick up verses 13 to 18 today, it shouldn't surprise us then that after James has finished talking about trials, he starts by saying in verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, let no one say when he is tempted. Not if he is tempted, but when. Because just as trials are certain in a fallen world for Christians, so too are temptations. We all face temptations. Yes, in different ways and to varying degrees, perhaps, but all of us are susceptible to temptation. And now a question we might be asking here is, why does James move from discussing trials to then temptations? And I think the big reason is because when we hit a trial so often in life, what immediately happens is we find ourselves being tempted as well. When we face financial difficulties, we're so often tempted to distrust God and his provision for us. When we face injustice or when we suffer for doing good in the world, we might be tempted to call into question God's goodness and his justice. When we or someone close to us goes through pain and suffering, we may be tempted to question God's love and compassion. Outward trials bring inward temptations. That's the reality, James says. And this is all part of the testing of our faith that James talked about in, in verse 2. God in his sovereignty, he allows both trials and temptations to come to us in life. And he does so for our good, to deepen and to strengthen and to mature our faith and dependence on him. The goal is, verse 4, look at verse 4 and verse 12. The goal is that steadfast, steadfastness would be produced and that steadfastness would have its full effect. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's the goal, James says, that we would be, verse 12, that blessed man, blessed man or blessed woman who remains steadfast under trial. Because when we have stood the test of time, we will receive that crown of life that is promised to those who love God. That's the goal. A life of wholeness, a life of blessing that's only found in trust in God. So James knows that we need to be educated this morning on temptations if we are going to stand any chance of passing 
that test and of overcoming our temptations in life. So here's where we're going to go this morning. Verses 13 to 18. Here's what James wants us to know. He wants us to know where temptations come from, how temptation works, where giving in to temptation ultimately leads, and how temptation can be overcome. That's where we're going. So firstly, James wants us to know where temptation comes from. Because as we've said, our reflex so often when temptations come in life is to lay the blame elsewhere. And James obviously knows that some of these Christians are being tempted to lay the blame before God, to say that the temptations that they are facing are from him. And it's maybe even the same for us. We find ourselves saying things when we're tempted like, well, this is just the way God made me. These are the desires he created me to have. He's the one who put me in this situation. He's the one who gave me this weakness. But James counters that kind of thinking by reminding these followers of Jesus Christ and reminding us of what God is really like. Look at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. James is crystal clear here. Our temptations do not come from God. God is completely untemptable. He is utterly pure, completely untainted by evil and sin. It holds no attraction to him. And because of this, we can be sure that God isn't trying to trip us up or to make us fall into sin. He isn't sitting in heaven looking for ways to tempt us to sin. Now, the Bible's clear that the devil, our great adversary, has a big role to play in our temptation as well. Think of the book of Job for a moment. If you know the story, the devil comes to God and asks God to allow him to tempt this faithful man, Job. And God allows that to happen, for Job to be tested in his faith with the condition that the devil spares Job's life. It shows us that temptations do not come from God, but that God allows temptations as a way of our faith being tested to produce that steadfastness that's talked about in verse 4. Think of Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 4. After his baptism, he's led off into the wilderness and he's tempted for 40 days by the devil. And we'll see later in James chapter 4, verse 7, that James knows the devil is at work in our temptations as well, because he says in James chapter 4, verse 7, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So here, James knows that the devil is a player in our temptations, that he is involved. But James lays the responsibility for our temptations, not with God or with the devil, but with us. With us, with you and me. Look at verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. See, the, the evil tugging away at you and me when we are tempted by sin is our very own. We own it. We can't blame anyone else or anything else for it. It's not the fault of our parents or our peers. It's not the fault of our circumstances or our genes or our God. We are to blame. And it's an uncomfortable truth to face up to, isn't it? 
It's kind of like the uncomfortable truth I had to face up to when I failed my Spanish oral, oral uh, exam at AS level in school. Now, for oral exams, what I used to do was I used to learn rote answers. I wonder if anybody else did that, where you, you learn things, you know, completely wrote that um, maybe the teacher had told you, you know, this is what they're going to ask. And so I wrote out an answer, and I just learned that answer. And if I got asked about what was in my pencil case or what I did at the weekend, I was sorted. I was fine because I knew what I was going to say. But if they went off paste at all, I was, I was done, really, because I hadn't prepared to go off paste. And I remember when I went into my Spanish AS level, uh, the examiner started asking me about the Spanish book that we'd been studying in class, and I was all over the place. <laughs> that wasn't what I'd prepared for at all. I started seasoning my Spanish with some French, because I did French as well at AS level. I started using more hand gestures and gesticulating like you do you know, in Italian, and, um, but none of it was working. She wasn't buying it at all. And I came out of the, that exam with a D, which I had never experienced before, and, and I could have blamed the examiner. I could have blamed my teacher. But the honest truth was it was my fault. I'd been taught the right material in class. I'd been prepared in the right way. I'd had plenty of time to revise and practice, but I'd not done the proper work to prepare for that AS level, Spanish oral. And the oral exam just showed that. The exam was the occasion for my failure, but it wasn't the cause of my failure. And the same is true when it comes to temptation. My circumstances, they may be the occasion for my temptation, but they are not the cause of my temptation. My difficult family background or my broken friendship group or the really testing circumstances that I find myself in, they provide the opportunity or the platform for me to be tempted. But they are not the reason for my temptation. I am. There is something within me. The desire to sin wells up inside of me. It comes from my own heart. James says this is where temptation comes from. But secondly, he says, look at how temptation works. Look closely at the language James uses here in verses 14. Verse 14, sorry. He uses the words lured and entice. And listen to the NIV translation of verse 14 because I think it adds another layer to this. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. This is the language of a hunt. There's the idea of concealment, of deception here. Like a lion in the African plains stalking its prey, coaxing it out into the open, and then striking, pouncing upon it, dragging its prey off to devour it. Like a fish. First enticed and lured by the bait attached to that deadly hook and then caught and dragged out of the water by the fishermen. And James is saying something deeply profound about our human nature here. Because when it comes to temptation, we are both the hunter and the hunted. We are both the agent and the victim of our evil desires. The desire to sin is born out of my own heart Yet it's me that those sinful desires entice and attack. We are our own worst enemies because our own evil, sinful desires work against us. 
And these ungodly desires, when fed and nurtured in our hearts and in our minds, they inevitably lead to ungodly action. Look at verse 15. This is where sin is born, James says. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. You see the pattern of verse 14 and 15? We see something that captures our attention. And it captivates our minds and our thinking. And if we allow it to dwell in our minds long enough, then it arouses the sinful desires of our heart. And when we allow those sinful desires in our heart to go unchecked and unrestrained, that will inevitably lead to sinful action. I see it. I want it. I take it. I see it. I want it. I act upon it. And this is the pattern that we see right throughout Scripture when it comes to temptation. Think of the first sin in the Garden of Eden, the fall in Genesis 3. The serpent comes to Eve and he tempts her with the forbidden fruit. He tempts her to doubt God and his goodness. Did God really say that? Tempts her to believe that God is withholding something good from her and Adam. And what does Eve do? Well, look at verse 6 of Genesis 3. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave to her husband who was with her and he ate. She saw it, she wanted it, and she took it. Think of King David in 2 Samuel 11 with Bathsheba. It's the same pattern again. This is what it says in verse 2. David is on the roof of his house. And David arose from his couch and walking on the roof of the king's house. And he saw from the roof of a, a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. He saw. He wanted. And so what does David do? He takes He gave in to temptation. He takes someone else's wife and he sleeps with her. She becomes pregnant. And if you know the story, one sin just leads to another, which eventually has David orchestrating the death of this woman's husband, Uriah. I see it. I want it. And I take it. And this is how temptation works. And James says... You need to understand this because look where giving in to temptation ultimately leads. Look at the end of verse 15. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Sinful desires give birth to sinful deeds, and sinful deeds ultimately give birth to death. And this is the pattern that we see throughout Scripture as well, because right from the beginning, when Adam and Eve gave in to temptation in the garden and sinned against God, they died. God promised death. What we get for rejecting God and following the sinful passions of our heart is death. Not just physical death in this life, but death forever in eternity, spiritual death. And what we tend to do sometimes is we downplay the seriousness of sin. We minimize sin. We let ourselves off the hook when it comes to giving in to temptations because we think, oh, do you know it's only small? It's only a little sin. 
We compare ourselves to other people and we think, you know, I'm not as bad as them and the sin in their lives that's so evident. We're tempted by sin and we think, you know, it's harmless. It's not affecting anyone else. But James says, let's not kid ourselves. Sin leads nowhere but death. The wages of sin is death. I was reminded of a story I once heard of how Eskimos hunt and kill wolves in places like Siberia and Alaska. What they do is, firstly, the Eskimo, he gets his knife and he coats the blade with animal blood and allows the blood to freeze on the knife. Then he adds another layer of blood on top of that and another and another until the blade is completely concealed in a block of frozen blood. Next, the hunter, he fixes the knife into the ground and packs the snow around it with the blade up. And when the wolf, with its sensitive nose, it smells the scent of that sweet blood, it discovers the bait, and it licks, and it tastes the fresh frozen blood. And the wolf's desires for blood have been aroused now, and he begins to lick faster and more vigorously, lapping the blade until that razor blade edge is laid bare. The wolf continues to lick the blade almost feverishly now, and so great is his craving for blood that he doesn't even notice the razor-sharp sting of the naked blade on his own tongue. Nor does he realize that his insatiable thirst is being satisfied now by his own blood. He just craves more and more. He licks harder and harder until finally that wolf bleeds out and collapses dead in the snow. It's a gruesome picture, but I think it shows us something of the consuming, self-destructive nature of sin in our lives. Sin is a murder. And we are both the hunter and the hunted. The knife is planted in our own hearts, enticing us like that wolf to give in to the temptation and satisfy our craving for sin. And when we succumb to our temptations, we are like that wolf licking that blade. At the start, in the first few licks, it's just the small sin, it's just harmless really. We don't feel any pain. But look at where it leads. As those desires are fed and our sinful nature grows stronger and stronger, our appetite for sin becomes insatiable. It consumes us. And that's when the licking starts to get out of control. One click in the internet, watching something that we know that we shouldn't leads to another. One gossipy conversation leads to another. One outburst of anger leads to another. One sin leads to another. One small sin leads to a bigger sin. One sin leads to a pattern of sin, a habit of sin. And that's when the blade starts to cut deep in our hearts and in our lives. And let's make no mistake about it, friends. If we feed those sinful desires, no matter how small they are in the beginning, our evil, sinful nature will always overpower us. It will always win in the end because we become numbed. Like the tongue of that wolf, we become numbed to the destructive effect of sin in our lives and in the lives of those around us. And the only place that giving in to temptation and sin leads is death. 
James says in verse 16, dear brother or sister, beloved brother or sister, do not be deceived. Whatever sin you're flirting with today, whatever deception you're buying in life, whatever sinful desires you're giving into right now, resist them. Run from them. Flee from them. Put them to death. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That's what John Owen, the famous preacher, once said. And I thought at this point it would be helpful maybe just to, to pause or to sidestep slightly and to think practically at how we can kill sin in our lives. How we can stop sin right at the source, resist temptation right from the outset. There are three practical things that I think can help with this in fighting temptation and fleeing sin. There are so many more things I could say, but time would only allow me to think of three. And these are kind of three broad ones, I think. The first is this, be aware. Be aware. It's so important for us to be self-aware. I said this earlier, the pattern of temptation is I see it, I want it, I take it. And we can fight that battle against temptation right in that first stage. We can guard our hearts by considering the things that we allow our eyes to see and the things that we allow our minds to consider. So are there unhelpful things that you're allowing your eyes to see right now? Things which you know are causing you to stumble and to fall into sin. It might be stuff that you know is sinful. It might be stuff that just you know is wrong in your heart of hearts. You need to stop that. You need to flee from it today. But it might be things as well that aren't inherently evil in and of themselves, just unhelpful. Things which arouse those evil desires in our hearts. Do you know two unhelpful things for me, if I'm being really honest with you? One of them is Instagram. It creates feelings of jealousy and insecurity and resentment towards other people in my heart. And do you know where often that leads? It leads to slander, to gossip. And do you know where the other, the other one is that's unhelpful on the internet? It sounds so stupid, but it's property, pal. Consumes my thoughts at times, makes me anxious about money, wishes, makes me covet things and wish for things in my heart that I know I don't have and that other people do. Be aware of the things that you look at. And be aware of the things that are filling your mind and shaping your thoughts. Are your thoughts being filled and shaped by God and his word? How can we ever grow and mature in our faith if we're not hearing from God every day? If he's not the primary voice in our lives? How can we ever have this eternal perspective in our trials and in our temptation if God's word and his spirit aren't primarily guiding and directing us? Be aware and be aware of the times that you do fall into sin and temptation. What are the occasions that you feel most tempted? Is it when you're tired, maybe? Or is it when you find yourself at a loose end with nothing else to do, like David on the top of that roof, when he just looks and sees Bathsheba? Or is it when you're spending time with a particular group of people, and something like gossip or slander or talking about other people are rife. What are the habits or patterns that lead you to give in to temptations? Identify the patterns. Understand your weaknesses. 
and susceptibilities and ask God to help you stop them at source. Be aware, but also, secondly, be accountable. We need people in our lives who will ask us the difficult, uncomfortable questions. People who will be honest with us, challenge us, confront our sin. Just as James is doing with these believers in this letter, have you got one or two trusted people in your life who you can confide in? People who know your weaknesses. People who you know will be praying for you, praying against temptation in your life. Core groups within our MCs, that, that's one place that we get that. But it might be other people out there as well. Who are those people? Ask people to keep you accountable. Be aware, be accountable. And then the last thing is be ruthless. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Flee. Get rid. Make tough choices if you need to, but do it for the good of your soul. As Jesus says, it's, it's better to, to, to pluck out your right eye than to, to fall into to sin because of your right eye and the things that you're looking at. It's better to cut off your right arm than for your whole body to fall into sin and to be condemned to hell. Be aware, be accountable, be ruthless. But as good as those tips are, they're not enough. Because we know what our evil, sinful nature is really like. And it's tugging away at us and it will always win the day. And so the only way that we can pass the test of our temptations and overcome our temptations is to trust in the God who has triumphed for us. The God who has overcome temptations on our behalf. That's what James says at the end of our passage today. Know who he is and what he has done for us. Look at verses 16 to 18. This is what James is going to point us to throughout this letter. He's going to show us that in and of ourselves, we cannot live a faithful life to God. We cannot overcome our temptations ourselves. We are incapable of doing it. This is why we're not to be deceived. But what we're to do is we're to look to God who is the source of our triumph. Because we are to look to God, who is the one that every good and every perfect gift comes from. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Don't be deceived, James says, because there is no such thing as a good and perfect gift outside of what God the Father graciously gives to us. And we can begin to overcome our temptations when we listen to and we trust God over listening to and trusting our own nature. Jesus, or James says, know that truly that God is your infinitely good Father who knows exactly what you need and who promises to give to you exactly what you need. That's what James says in verses 17 and 18. And look in these verses how he describes God as our Father Three things I've got here. He's sovereign. He is the father of lights, the sovereign creator, the one who brought all things, including the stars in the sky, into existence. He's the one who's sovereignly in charge of this world. Every corner of the universe is his. And the incredible thing is, he is sovereignly in charge of our lives as well. 
sovereign even in our trials and in our temptations, and he allows both as a means of deepening and strengthening our faith in him. He's sovereign, but he's also dependable. Look, he's the God who is unchanging. He made the moon and the stars, but he is unlike them in an important way. While the whole universe is in continuous motion, always shifting and changing, God is unchanging and constant. So when he promises to generously give us wisdom when we need it, as James said in verse five, we know that he can be trusted. When he promises to lavish good gifts on us, his children, then we know that we can take him at his word. He is dependable. So let's ask him for help and wisdom in those times when we need it, in those times of temptation. He promises to give generously to all who humble themselves before him. He promises to exalt those who humble themselves. He is our father who is utterly dependable. And look, lastly, he is gracious to us. He's so gracious and kind. Because even though he's the God who is unchanging, he is the God who promises to change us. He promises to graciously change us and give us the things that we need in order to triumph over our temptations. And the greatest of these heavenly gifts that come down to us from the Father is, of course, the gift of his own son, Jesus Christ. That's what James is alluding to in the imagery that he uses in verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth, or he chose to give us birth, as the NIV puts it, by the word of truth. That's Jesus that we should be a kind of first fruit of his creatures. See, while our sinful thoughts and desires only give birth to sin and death, God, by his gracious will, he chose to give us the heavenly gift of new birth through his son, Jesus Christ, through the word of truth. He chose to give it to you, brother or sister, because you would have never chosen him on your own. That's the truth. Our desires are so broken that we would never have chosen him, but only chosen sin and death time and time and time again. But by his grace, God chooses to give us Jesus, the one who has triumphed over sin and death on our behalf, the one who is willing to come down to this earth and experience our weakness and experience the temptations just as we do, yet never giving in to sin which means that he is our great high priest who can sympathize with us in our weakness. But he's also our perfect savior whose death cleanses us from sin and saves us from death forever. It's through trusting in Jesus Christ that God promises to transform us, to change us from the inside out, to make us a new creation with new hearts and new minds that are renewed by his spirit. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17. If we are in Christ, we are a new creation. We are born to a new life. The old is gone and the new has come. Praise God. Through faith in Jesus, we've been given a new heart. A new heart that desires the better things that God offers. A new heart that begins to see our sin for what it really is. Something that only leads to destruction and death learns to hate sin more and more, to fight sin and resist sin more and more. 
And it's through faith in Jesus Christ that we are given a new heart that possesses the very spirit of Jesus. His power living in us, helping us in our weakness, empowering us every day to do battle against our sinful nature, giving us grace in those times when we do slip up and when we do fall into temptation. But in those times, reminding us of the forgiveness that is offered to us at the cross. And do you see the encouragement at the end of verse 18? This is a great way to finish because in Jesus, we have the hope of a future that is free from trials and free from temptations. Because the first fruits that he mentions here, they are that initial batch of the farmer's crop that proves and guarantees that the rest of the harvest is on its way. It's coming. And so we can be sure that just as Paul says in Philippians 1 verse 6, that the God who started a good work in us, he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We can trust in the transforming power of the gospel. We can trust that in all things, every difficult trial and in every challenging and testing temptation, God is changing us. He is conforming us to the image of his own son, Jesus Christ. Friends, whatever sin you are struggling with today, whatever temptation you are giving into, know that there is grace for you and Jesus. There is forgiveness. There is help in your weakness. Look to Jesus Christ today, the one who died to give us the victory over sin and death, the one who died to change us from the inside out, Put your trust in him because he is the pinnacle of the good and perfect gifts that God promises to send down to us, his children. Look to him and I pray that our faith is strengthened and I pray that our hope is renewed. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that even in difficult passages like this, Lord, where we realize uh, just what we are truly like, we're humbled by that, Lord. We have a difficult and uncomfortable truth to, to face up to, Lord. But even in that, there's grace and there's hope and there's mercy that's shown by you, Lord. You don't condemn us, but you offer the way for us to be cleansed and to be renewed. You don't banish us from your presence forever, but through your own Son, Jesus Christ, who you sent into this world to live the perfect life that we could never live, to resist temptation in the way that we can never do, Lord, on our own. Jesus Christ, he died to give us a new heart, to renew our minds, to offer us the hope of forgiveness and the way of being brought back into relationship with you again, Lord. It's only through Jesus that we can be transformed and it's only through Jesus that we can truly overcome our temptations and we can fight against that sinful nature that we have, Lord. Renew us, Lord, today. Renew our hope today. I pray, Lord, that if we are struggling with sin today, that we would come before you and confess our sins and know that you are faithful and just and that you will forgive us. Lord, I pray that we would understand as well today, maybe for the first time, the seriousness of our sin and where sin truly leads. It leads nowhere but death. And so our only hope 
is to turn to our Savior, Jesus Christ. The one who promises to redeem us. The one who died in our place to offer us life. Life both now, but also life forever in eternity. Lord, may we look to Jesus today. May our faith in him be strengthened and deepened. And may we be faithful followers of Jesus Christ we pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.